0: I know that that you all are astounded at the rate with which we are moving through 1 Peter. (laughs) A few weeks ago, we we began a sermon series on 1 Peter, and now here it is, the fourth sermon, and we're still in chapter 1. So I know that everybody is astounded by the fact that we are moving so quickly. The only thing that moves slower than a preacher through a book of the Bible is the government when it wants to do something good. (laughs) Half the crowd laughed. The other half shook their head in wonder. (laughs) Nudged the person next to them. What's he talking about? I don't know either. So far, as we've looked through 1 Peter together, just here in chapter 1, and we're moving into chapter 2 today, uh, by the end of today's sermon, we will be well into chapter 2. I know you're excited for that. But so far, what we've seen is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, most likely living in Rome near the end of his life, writing a letter of encouragement and exhortation to a group of Christians or churches in what is present-day Turkey in Asia, Minor, And he begins his letter of encouragement and exhortation simply by saying, this is who you are because of Jesus. You are an elect exile. You are, according to his great mercy, God's great mercy, born again in Jesus. And then he steps into this part of his letter, chapter 1, verse 13 and following, where he says, because of who you are in Jesus, live this way. Live like it. And so what we've seen just in the last few weeks is that because of who they are, these elect exiles are are different than the world around them because, one, they are born again, two, they have a living hope, and three, they live differently. Starting in chapter 1, verse 13, and then through chapter 2, verse 3, if you have your Bibles or your, your Bible app on your technological media consumption device, feel free to open to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 13. Here in this wider passage, what we see is Peter say, Because of who you are in Jesus, set your hope fully on Jesus, live a holy life like God the Father, love one another, and grow. Those are four things that that Peter lays out, not as polite recommendations, but as commands. There's an expectation that those who trust in Jesus, these elect exiles, there's an expectation that they will live differently because of who they are. It's true for his first audience, and it's true for us today. They're expected to live differently than they did before believing in Jesus, and they are expected to live differently from how the society, culture, and a world around them lives. And we see today that believers in Jesus are set apart to live differently, to love, and to grow. If you look at chapter 1, verse 22 is where we're going to pick up today we see Peter ground his command to love in their identity in Jesus, right? This isn't just a, a love is all you need kind of thing, right? Was that, wasn't that the Beatles who sang that, love is all, all you need? This isn't a John Lennon kind of ambiguous, what is love? It is, it is Peter saying, because of who you are in Jesus, because of what Jesus has done for you, love. Now, this is is completely in line with what Peter has been saying. Believers are to set their hope fully on future grace that comes with Jesus' return because they've received this new birth, this new hope, and a new inheritance. Believers are to live holy lives, to be holy, because they've been ransomed by God through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so now, because of who they are in Jesus... Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Be who you are. Remember your name. I used to hate it when I was in high school and I would be uh, leaving home, you know, at the the age of 16 or 17, of course, I am the smartest man in the world at 16 or 17, and I'm bulletproof, and I've never made a bad decision in my life at 16 or 17. And some of the last words I would hear from my mom or dad as I walked out of the house is, remember, you're a Miller. (laughs) Now, listen, I grew up in a town of 3,500 people where my grandfather grew up. Right? I grew up in the same town where my grandpa, my dad, and my uncle, and of course my older brother, all had reputations that preceded me. And so as I walk out the front door and they say, remember, you're a miller. Uh, what am, what's that supposed to do for me? I got a lot to live up to, to be honest, in not good ways. So the issue is, be who you are. You have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, be who you are, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter's reflecting upon their response of faith to the gospel. They've purified their souls by obeying the truth of the gospel. Faith or trust in Jesus is is the obedient response to the preaching of the word, to the preaching of the gospel. Remember what happens in in Acts chapter 2. After that, that first Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended upon a small group of believers, numbering 120, Peter went out into the crowd and he preached about Jesus, crucified and risen. He preached about the Holy Spirit being poured out. And the crowds asked them, brothers, what are we to do? Peter replies, repent and be baptized. He replies, turn away from sins of the old life. Turn away from the old way of doing things. Turn to God with trust in Jesus. That is an obedient response of faith to the gospel. And so these people to whom he is writing, they have turned to Jesus with faith. That's obedience to the gospel is on the first level, believing, responding with trust. But one of the most amazing things, I think, and often overlooked thing about the gospel of Jesus is that not only are sinners reconciled to God in this vertical dimension of being through the gospel, but sinners are reconciled now or can be reconciled now to one another through this horizontal means of relationship. One of the amazing truths of the gospel is that through Jesus, God reconciles and restores sinners to himself, and the good news of Jesus becomes the very grounds upon which sinners can be reconciled and restored to other sinners. And this is the expectation of how believers will live. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. If you've been reconciled to God the Father in this vertical relationship by being ransomed from the ignorant former ways and the the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, as Peter has said, if you've been ransomed by God the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ, then yes, you are now holy, but secondly, you ought to be loving one another, and there's an issue if you aren't. Believers in Jesus have been born again, Peter says. They've been given a new life. A new life that is both qualitatively and quantitatively different than the old lives of ignorance and futility they've led. This new life, being born again, believing in Jesus, which is a gift from God, changes us significantly and wholly. The new life is both qualitatively and quantitatively different. What do I mean by that? Quantitative is quantity. Let me think about the Golden Corral. <laughs> I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm just saying you go to the Golden Corral, and there's a high quantity of food. It's a lot there, right? Quality, though. Quality, you go to Ruth Chris, and you expect a high quality of food. They'll charge you 100 bucks for a filet about that big. Well, see, the gospel, the new life that you receive in Jesus, that we receive in Jesus, is both the highest quality of life imaginable because only in Jesus is there true and lasting hope. And unending life in the quantity, the quality, the quantity, I got it right the first third time, (laughs) in that it never ends. This life is given by God and according to his grace, his mercy, through the imperishable word of God, the gospel which was preached to these early believers and the gospel which they trusted. And think about the contrast of the word of God and the glory of the things of humans. You know, there's there's things that we do that give the impression of eternity, There's things that we do that we think are going to last forever. Well, in, in the world of Peter's day, Rome was the dominant city in the Mediterranean world. Its nickname is the Eternal City. Rome was the most powerful, most glorious, and seemingly most lasting city of the Mediterranean region. Wealth poured into its coffers from all over the world, and it had conquered most of what they knew as the known world. Following in the footsteps of Alexander the Great, the the Roman Empire stretched from the British Isles in the north to Africa in the south, from Spain in the west to modern-day Iraq in the east. And yet what Peter says to these believers These believers who knew the glory of Rome, as he quotes from Isaiah 40, the glory of Rome is nothing compared to the glory of the word of God. Peter says to these folks, essentially, think of the most glorious thing you can possibly imagine. And you know what? It ain't got nothing on the gospel. The most enduring and powerful empire these believers would ever experience would wither and fade. Its wealth and its influence would dwindle. Its conquered lands themselves would be conquered. But that which gave these believers in Jesus new life, it endures forever with an unfading glory. And so, Peter essentially says, you've been given a new life that is incomparably glorious because of the incomparable glorious word, so love one another. Now, perhaps the first thing we ought to to do is recognize that in the command to love, there is an unstated, implicit notion that the new life of a believer in Jesus, given by God, is a life that is lived in community you can't love someone if they ain't there essentially is the point point. and peter says love one another he's pointing out this fact that there is no such thing as faith alone but faith within a body of fellow believers in jesus people who as believers in jesus live differently by loving one another but what is love oh baby don't hurt me right the head bob It went over much better in this service than it did earlier. (laughs) You see, that's the issue for us, right? What is love? Well, the love that God defines and he calls us to live with one another is, is very different than the world's version of love. The world, especially our modern world, has has really reduced love to the point where it's almost only ever considered in terms of romantic or sexual things. Love in our world is an emotion or a feeling. It is an act into which we easily fall and out of which we can just as easily slide. Author Brene Brown quipped that people would want love to be unicorns and rainbows. Jesus in bubbles, but that's not what it is. When Peter was writing about love, he wasn't writing about romantic love. He wasn't writing about some internal warm fuzzy or something that was optional. In this context, Peter is writing about love as the expression of right relationship between God's people based upon God's character. And it is thus a very real part of being holy as God is holy. One of the easiest ways, perhaps, to define what love is, is to think about what it does and what it does not do. The kind of love that Peter's writing about is, at its core, not an emotion, not a feeling, but rather it is an act of the will and of the mind in which you care for others as you care for yourself. Within this context and within this loving relationship, then, there is no room, as Peter says in chapter 2, verse 1, for malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or slander. This kind of love is other-seeking, not self-seeking. This kind of love is other-serving, not self-serving. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 writes that this kind of love is patient and kind, rejoicing with the truth, bears all, believes all, hopes all, endures all. It is not envious or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful, and it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. This kind of love, Jesus says in John 15, is greater, uh, is a sacrificial, a self-sacrificial love because greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Being willing to give up something of yourself so that another might live being willing to give up something of your own preferences so that another might be fulfilled, being willing to give up something from your wallet so that another might have a sandwich. This kind of self-sacrificial love is expected to be shown between believers in Jesus as it seeks others' good, others' benefit, others' well-being. It seeks to protect life. It seeks to serve the other, especially in times of need. And this kind of love builds up the community, does not tear it down. And this kind of love is a testimony to the gospel of Jesus. By this, Jesus said, All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This kind of love garners the attention of the world simply because it is so incredibly different than what the world has to offer. The world's mantra essentially is, do unto others before they do unto you. That was either a tool or a nine-inch nail song, I can't remember, but they said it, and the world lives it. And so a world or a a community in which we do unto others as we would have them do unto us, a, a world in which we love our neighbors as ourselves, that kind of community is different It marks the elect exiles apart from the world around them. And love in a way that the world cannot love. Because this kind of love, the love that God defines, requires God's work. The kind of love that God expects of his people to show to one another requires the new life that he gives, the the transformation from the old to the new through the power of the Holy Spirit and the ongoing spiritual growth that he commands. Of course, it must be said that that Jesus makes it perfectly clear we're supposed to love folks who are, are, are not part of our community of believers. Loving one another And loving outsiders are not mutually exclusive things. Sometimes, however, it seems as though the capital C church needs to be reminded that believers are supposed to love fellow believers also. And so believers in Jesus are set apart to live differently, to love one another. But we also see as we come to the end of this particular passage, we also see that uh, believers are expected to grow. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. To have tasted that the Lord is good is to have been given the new birth caused by God through Jesus Christ and according to his great mercy. The Lord is indeed good as he ransoms sinners from empty and futile lives, lives of sin and estrangement from God and neighbor. God is indeed good as he makes men and women his children through Jesus, gives them a salvation that is both present and future, and secures them to an inheritance that he keeps safe. Like newly born babies, it's expected for a child in Jesus to grow. A primary symptom of of physical malnutrition in children is a failure to hit the benchmarks of expected growth in height and weight. A lack of physical growth in a child is a sign that something is askew, something's not right. Just as children need good food to grow, and just as adults need uh, good, fruit, good food to be healthy, so believers in Jesus need spiritual food to grow spiritually to mature. New birth is a new life. A new life needs sustenance. and God's grace is that sustenance. Peter writes, like newborn infants long, crave for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Well, what is, what is this pure spiritual milk? I want to recommend to you four. Four means of grace, four avenues to receive pure spiritual milk. The first is the word, the Bible God's scripture, as St. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible contains that which God desires for his people to know about himself, about salvation, and about the life of faith. And so to grow in God, believers in Jesus must be people of the word of God both individually and corporately. A second uh, avenue, or second means of grace, second means of receiving pure spiritual milk are sacraments. Here at Emmanuel Anglican Church, as part of the worldwide Anglican Communion, we recognize and celebrate two sacraments the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And what uh, are, are forming Statements of faith tell us that the, the baptism and the Lord's Supper are sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace and God's will toward us, by which he does work invisibly in us and does not only quicken, but also strengthens and confirms our faith in him. Baptism, that once-performed sacrament of institution uh, or initiation and the Lord's Supper in which we participate until Jesus returns, their means through which God works in us, changing us, as Article 25 states, creating faith, strengthening faith, confirming faith. And so to grow in God, believers in Jesus participate in the means of grace that Christ has ordained baptism, and the Lord's Supper. But we can never mention prayer enough. Another avenue to receive pure spiritual milk is prayer. When it comes to spiritual growth, we cannot overestimate that which prayer can accomplish. It's a conversation with God, so to speak, and, and quite often what we find is that in prayer, we are changed. Prayer, both individually and corporately as a body, is so vitally important to growing in maturity. A fourth avenue to receive pure spiritual milk is is kind of uh, ironic because it is the community of believers. Running throughout this sermon today is a sub-theme. Believers in Jesus are not made to be alone. They are made for community. I say that it's ironic because the church, the community of believers in Jesus, whether we talk about local manifestations of it, or whether we're talking about the big universal church, is a bunch of sinners called together and redeemed by Jesus. Only God can take a bunch of knuckleheads, put them together, and make it work. And sometimes we know that it doesn't work well, and mostly it's because we're not growing and maturing in our faith. We've allowed sin to creep in. But when it comes to growth, spiritual growth, community is absolutely important. Within the community, we find love, we find support. We see mature Christians model growth. We, we grow through service and through ministry. Within corporate worship, we sing praises, we offer our prayers, we hear the word, and we celebrate the sacraments. These are means to receive the, the pure the spiritual milk, word, sacrament, prayer, and community. But what does it look like to grow in maturity? If we confine ourselves to just this passage of First Peter, growing in maturity or growing up into salvation, as Peter puts it, would look like loving one another would look like being holy like the father would look like setting hope fully on jesus it would look it would mark us as looking different than the world around us we are a peculiar people set apart because of jesus and in jesus to look differently to live differently than to be different than the world around us we are set apart to be salt and light We are set apart to live differently, not so that we're just marked out as weirdos. Trust me, we are. We are called to live differently, set apart to live differently, so that we can point to Jesus, point to the One beyond, the One in whom there is living hope, the One in whom there is the possibility of loving, the One in whom and through whom there is the possibility of growth, the One in whom and through whom there is the possibility of being holy as the Father is holy. We do these things because in obedient response to the God who, according to his great mercy, has given us new birth and brought us to a living hope, we do these things to make much of him and to proclaim to the world around us that, you know what, we don't have the same priorities, the same values, the same beliefs that you do. We will love you. We will proclaim the gospel to you. But we are different than you because of the way we are called to be and the way we are called to live. All of these things mark believers out as being different, as exiles. All mark believers in Jesus as having different beliefs, priorities, values, and morals in the unbelieving world. We are strangers in a strange land. We are called to live differently because we've been set apart to be different. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son,